Before we get to our guest, I want to talk about our NOAS subscription. CD Media is not just a local news company. We're not just a military company. We're not even just a national company. CDM is a global news organization that has reporters from the Middle East to Eastern Europe to the Balkans to Asia to Latin America to the United States. Put us in your daily scan and get the news, tip of the spear news from around the world. I know that people don't like ads, however. They don't like pop-up ads on their phone. They don't like to see ads on the websites. But you know what? We have to make money. Seriously, we have to support ourselves, and that's one of the ways we do it. However, if you don't like ads, you can sign up for our NOAD subscription. And guess what? You get access to our dozen newspapers around the world, our dozen news organizations, and you get access to all this quality, high-quality content. So, so give us a few bucks, sign up for your NOAD subscription, and you'll get access to all of the sites with a block on the ads, and you'll be very happy. And now let's get to our guest. Uh, to have Dr. Dennis Carroll with us today. Um, this is more than just an American conversation. It's a global conversation because uh, Dennis is going to be in business for a long period of time with all of his predictions about pandemics, epidemics, One Health. So I've asked Dennis to come on. Welcome, Dennis. It's good to see you, Christy. Uh, because I think it's really important for the public to understand. You and I first met over two and a half years ago. I called you because you were one of the authors on the Lancet um, article in February 2020. And I had uh, wanted to get to know sort of the group of people on that because I didn't know anything about COVID. I didn't know anything about coronaviruses. Um, but I wanted to find out why you had concluded so early then that this was not a lab leak at that point in time. Because when I was in, in university a long time ago, um, I was trained as a criminal investigator and I could not conclude something so quickly um, without having done some some work. So right. anyways, we're, Dennis, we're here finally on camera because uh, we've talked off and on for the last couple of years. Dennis, explain to the public what it is that you guys do, because you, you're part, you started the PREDICT project uh, and oversaw it at the uh, USAID. You've been looking for coronaviruses for a long period of time, and the PREDICT project, as I understand it, um, you guys had discovered, I think it was 1,200 viruses, is that right? Correct. Over a 10-year period. Um, and then now you're with the Global Varome, you're, you're chair of the board, I guess, of the Global Varome project. Uh, and that is taking the PREDICT project on a global scale. Is that, is, do I have that right? That's a reasonable uh, explanation, sure. Okay, so, so start with what you guys do, because there's a, there's a consortium of international science and researchers. You know, you're part of So tell, tell the public what is it you guys do. Well, let me first say why we do what we do and then okay. what we do. And if anything, um, the last several decades have really shown a light on 
the evolving dynamic of emerging microbial threats like COVID-19. And what we've seen over the last several decades is uh, a very alarming trend where these events um, are happening with greater frequency. And as we move further into the 21st century, uh, what used to be rare events will become much more commonplace. And so understanding why the dynamics is changing and understanding what we might be able to do to preempt, disrupt um, future threats like COVID-19. So it's, it's one, it's a recognition we live in a different time uh, where we need to pay closer attention to these events. And secondly, we've learned that we know quite a bit and we can use that knowledge to our own advantage, um, particularly with an eye towards um, disrupting future um, threats and controlling them and eliminating them much earlier. And it's important to know that COVID-19, um, it's not the first virus of this type and it's certainly not the last. And what's really important is to understand that every future uh, viral threat we're going to encounter, the next COVID-20, 25, whatever it might be, already exists and it's circulating in nature already, but it's largely isolated within um, sort of wildlife populations of animals. And there, over a very long period of time, those viruses have developed by and large a, uh, a non-threatening relationship with their hosts in wildlife, mostly bats and rodents and non-human primates, but they've learned to coexist with one another. What's different now is the fact we live in a world where the sheer magnitude of the human footprint on this planet is disrupting what has been a long-standing ecologic balance between wildlife populations and our own existence. We're encroaching and on wildlife domains, we're changing the landscape that they live in. And so the interactions between us and them are intensifying. Look, a hundred years ago, a point of reference to certainly um, past pandemics, the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic occurred and there were about 1.8 billion people on this planet. Think about that for a moment. Yeah, As yeah. a species, we've been in existence for about 200, 300,000 years. And it took us the large majority of that time to hit a billion population. In 10 decades, 100 years after the 1918 pandemic, we will in the coming months uh, surpass 8 billion people on this planet. In other words, in one century, we've added 6 billion people. And you can't have that kind of explosive population growth that's associated with expanding settlements, expanding agricultural activities, our dramatic um, transition of the ecosystems around us, the landscape uh, disruptions that we've had. All of those have dramatically 
change what has been um, pretty much a fairly stable uh, balance between wildlife and human populations. 21st century, it's not going to be that way. So um, what used to be the Black Month, the 1918 pandemic, has now become a much more common event. Um, it's not a one in a hundred year event anymore. It's happening with greater frequency. Even as we talk about COVID-19, there are um, rising concerns about the spread of monkeypox. Um, we know that there are uh, thousands of potential viral threats circulating in wildlife. And what we've seen from our experiences to date is that by waiting for those viruses essentially to spill over and come to us, and then we react to them, we find ourselves extraordinarily vulnerable. The last two years has been a telling example of that. Uh, this virus, however it emerged, first uh, sort of gained recognition in December of 2019. In less than a year, we had two possibly three extraordinary vaccines ready to um, respond to this virus. But the virus had already swept around the world. Um, 10 million people were already dead. And the number of people that were able to vaccinate grossly um, under uh, delivers to the vast majority of people on this planet. Even though we can now create incredible vaccines within a year, our ability to produce enough vaccine to protect 8 billion people has left us in a very, very vulnerable state. So the work we're doing is fundamentally trying to totally change the paradigm. Instead of waiting for an outbreak to occur in a human population and then try and react, we're trying to take advantage of what we know, that whatever future threat there might be, it already is out there. So we have the opportunity essentially to go to the virus before it comes to us, go into their wildlife habitats and begin identifying and documenting which viruses we should pay attention to. Where are they? What animal populations are they in? And essentially put them on a watch list that we can continue to watch, follow, and if they do spill over, our ability to isolate and eliminate them rapidly uh, becomes much more likely by having been forewarned um, with sort of outreach surveillance that puts us much more drastic than waiting for the next spillover event to occur. So it's fundamentally a strategy. Go to the virus before it comes to us and use that power of insight to prevent the next spillover. And if it does happen, to identify it much earlier. So it's isolated and eliminated before it ever um, becomes a substantial threat to the human population. All right, so I, we need to ask some questions because I know the audience um, probably doesn't know this because I remember when you, you and I first started talking, I, I was pretty astounded. How many coronaviruses are there? Well, people, let me people in your body of work. Right. Let me work that we've done over the last decade has given us an opportunity to estimate the total number of viruses from 
what we would consider to be 25 high consequence viral families. Coronavirus is one example of a viral family. Influenza is one example of a viral family. And what we know from our past history is there are about 25 of these viral families that have shown their ability to infect and cause harm in the past. So we went out and did work in the field, going into wildlife areas and collecting samples from wildlife populations and examining those samples for viruses. And on the basis of that, we were able to do a calculation that there are about 1.6 million <coughs> of these viruses, distinct, unique viruses circulating in wildlife. We further estimate about 500,000 of those may have the potential to infect us. Just because a virus exists doesn't mean it will infect us. So we estimate there are about 500,000 that have the genetic pedigree, if you will, um, that suggests that they could infect us. But that said, the vast majority of infections that we have, whether they're from viruses or bacteria or fungi, have no consequence on us at all. Right now, we're carrying lots of different microbes that we're totally oblivious to. They, they're hitchhikers. So the vast majority of those viruses will similarly be um, non-consequential hitchhikers. But All right. So, so I mean, of those you want to pay attention to. So I, I we estimate that there are probably about three to five thousand different coronaviruses within the coronaviral family. <clears throat> a lot of research, Dennis. Pardon me. It's a lot of research. It's a lot of research, sure. And, and over ten over ten years, with uh, let's back up. Let's back up to to explaining why was the Predict project set up, and I think it was two thousand five. Do I have that right? No, Predict Predict. Um, I created that in two thousand nine, but it was a direct follow on to uh, work we were doing on avian influenza that began in two thousand five. <coughs> When, All right. The, what well, was the purpose? Explain to the public what the purpose of this was. Well, the purpose, look, let's first off go back to 2005 and avian influenza. Okay. Uh, that, that event was one that caused significant alarms because we found a novel influenza virus that when it did infect humans, it was highly lethal. It was essentially a virus that circulated among poultry and wild fowl. But on the odd event, <coughs> when it infected people, the mortality rate was on the order of 70 to 80%. So an incredibly lethal virus from a family of viruses, influenza, that has shown itself very adept at being able to infect us. So there was real concern that this virus, if allowed to continue to spread within poultry, mm -hmm. could acquire the necessary mutations that would make it highly transmissible to humans. So we mounted a global campaign. The U.S. government um, and the work that we did uh, was instrumental in helping to bring that virus under um, significant measures of control. But in doing that work, <clears throat> it 
had me asking the question, how unique were the influenza viruses? Were there other viruses that we could similarly identify and track down as we had with the avian influenza virus? What would it take? And were the technologies that we currently have sufficient to be able to do that kind of aggressive surveillance? So PREDICT, I designed and launched in 2009 as a, if you will, a proof of concept that you could take much of what we did for avian influenza and apply it <coughs> to a much broader array of viral threats beyond the influenzas, including coronaviruses and those other viruses that cause Ebola or Zika, uh, and be able to do the same kind of uh, characterization understand the viral ecology in a way that would make us much more uh, likely to be able to control it and eliminate it, much as we had done with that avian influenza virus. Who was the, who were the people in the U.S. government uh, that, that were supporting the creation of the PREDICT project? Well, that was principally uh, U.S. Agency for International Development, which is where I was working at the time. So USAID, whose mandate is foreign assistance around the world. It does not have a domestic, U.S. domestic agenda. So its purpose is to support and invest in the health and well-being of populations around the world. It's a broad development agency that works on health, agriculture, environment, democracy, um, economy. So it, it was a perfect uh, instrument, if you will, for being able to look at was it what is inherently a multi-sectoral event. That is, the challenges posed by uh, emerging disease threats. You know, covers not just human health, but it also because these viruses circulate in wildlife um, speaks to issues around conservation environment, ecology, uh, livestock, and agriculture. So USAID um, having responsibilities in all of those areas and having partnerships with governments and non-government organizations around the world in all of those areas really was a perfect platform to ask the question, could we reach further into the environments around us? to identify future threats before they emerge and bring the weight of improved development, improving economic standards, improving agricultural practices, uh, improved environmental practices that could essentially uh, disrupt and prevent future threats. So PREDICT was supported by USAID largely as a consequence of its developmental uh, mandate. So who paid for it? Well, was, the U.S. Congress paid for it. Was it, was it the U.S. Any, any other, well, since because it was on the global stage, <coughs> USAID, did you have any other uh, foreign governments? Well, there, we, we have significant partnerships with governments and foundations. Uh, which and ones? Governmental organizations around which the world. Which ones? Which foundations? Which governments? I mean, uh, how many labs did you have? How many? Uh, you know, well, we were, yeah. PREDICT was working in 30 different countries, 
in Africa, Asia, and in the Americas, uh, and partnered with governments, all of those governments, so that uh, we could leverage their capabilities, their resources, their personnel uh, to be able to do this work. Um, similarly, we had private sector partners, particularly in the agricultural sector, those that are engaged in livestock production, uh, became critical partners with us as well, since livestock frequently is a uh, instrument that's involved in these events as well. All right, so, so the public wants to know, I wanna know as a journalist, <coughs> what foundations, what, what corporations are, 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 support this type of work? Because it, because it affects everybody on the planet, because now the, you, you and people in your world have said from the beginning, this is not the first, this is not the last, everybody needs to get their act together. You sure. have said to me for two and a half years, Dennis, I mean, I think it's almost every conversation we have, that you know, your greatest, I, I guess, hiccup was the lack of global response to what happened with COVID-19. Yeah. Just the global the global response was not there as you as you thought it should be and thought it would be. Uh, everybody was out for themselves. All right. Country by country. But, you know, let's who are the players? Because people want to know. That's part of the reason why everybody sure. doesn't have a lot of trust. Right now, there's no trust in science that's out there. All right. That, that That's it's not just that there's no trust. Uh there's just not, not a lot of trust of what's going on because people don't know. That's why that was the purpose of doing this entire interview on camera so that people can understand where it is that you guys are coming from. Sure. So who, who's, who's in the room? Who's, who's well, making internationally, internationally, mm -hmm. we have the UN system has been very active, the World Health Organization, the Food and Agricultural Organization, um, the World uh, uh, Animal Health Organization have all been intimately involved. Uh, the World Bank has been intimately involved in this space. Which, uh, which part of the World Bank? Years ago, I was involved with the uh, implementing the ethics uh, seminar. Well, they have, they have a pandemic preparedness group uh, within the World Bank. And so that arm... How long has that been set up? It's been... They've been involved in this since avian influenza as well. Um, that was their first foray into this space. So they were actively in, involved and supportive. Uh, so that's 17, year, that's 17 years ago. Yeah, seven, 2005, 2006 is when they got involved. Okay, so, so do any, any of the big boys have any money involved in this? Any banks? Well, the, the World Bank, by Other working than the World Bank. by loans and grants uh, to governments, has been involved, absolutely. Okay, um, is IMF involved? IMF has been involved. Um, similarly, the Asia Development Bank uh, has been involved, as has the Africa Development Bank. So you look at the international and regional banking uh, entities, and they've clearly made uh, efforts in this space. We've worked with um, mining and petroleum um, groups around the world, uh, Chevron, ExxonMobil, the um, Australian mining uh, operations. All because of their work in wildlife areas um, had been uh, very instrumental in opening up localities that previously were remote and isolated um, have now become much more um, part of uh, the global system. So these uh, 
extractive industries have been very much involved in this. And by extractive, again, I mean mining, petroleum, agribusiness um, has also been very involved in this space. So there's a fairly large uh, consortia in a sort of loosely connected way have been active and involved in this space. Similarly, you see uh, the Skull uh, Foundation, the um, uh, Gates and others have been involved in this space as well. So how much, so the PREDICT project, when it was set up, uh, it was over 10 years, 1,200 uh, 1200 viruses, is that the correct terminology, were discovered by you guys? How many How many uh, international scientists were involved in this consortium? Oh, it would be in the thousands, to be honest with you. 5,000, 10,000, 20,000? Um, my guess would not do justice to it. Well, let's say several thousand. All right, so several thousand, and and how many how many countries? Thirty, thirty countries: Asia, uh, Latin America, Africa. In Africa, yeah. All right. So when you discover a virus, what do you guys do with it? You go out, you go out to the bat cave. You come back. You get you get a you get a bat. I mean, what, what do you do with it? You take it to a lab, and then and then what do you do? Well, you humanized mice that you yeah. been infected. The very, the very first thing you do is when you collect the sample, you essentially kill the virus, you denature it. What we're interested in is their RNA or the DNA um, in the virus. We want to make sure that we don't create an opportunity for accidental uh, spread of the virus. So, you so that's, why, that's why you deactivate the virus. So you deactivate it. As soon as you collect it, you deactivate it. But what we're really interested in are the uh, nucleic acids, the building blocks of life, the DNA and the RNAs. And that, so you don't do that, this in, you, you don't can do this characterize in. and understand very much everything we need to do. All right. So you don't deactivate it in the, in the back cave. You take it back to the lab and deactivate it. No, you deactivate it right there. As soon as you collect it, you deactivate it immediately. Oh, okay. So when it's back in the lab, it's deactivated. Okay, so that raises another question to me. Who, who, when you take it back to the lab and you've got the DNA and you're, you're looking for all the scientific evidence, let's say it's a new, it's a new one, okay? A new, new kid on the block virus. And so who owns that? I mean, what's the business model to, 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 to what you guys do? If you've got all these people from Skoll to Gates to banks, to, 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 you know, God knows who else is involved with this. You've got governments that, that are going to kick in money where you're going to have your teams in the country. Who owns what? Well, every sample we collect, we negotiate with the government of the country that we're working in. You so negotiate for what? For them to uh, allow the transfer of this uh, sample out of their country. To where? Uh, to laboratories that can do the kind of analysis uh, that needs to be done. These are very sophisticated uh, analytical exercises that need to be. Understood. So how many laboratories are there and who owns those laboratories? Well, the laboratories are in universities um, around the world. So, it's so how, many, how many how many how many universities are involved? That are involved with that are involved with this coronavirus research? Well, 
or what, virus universities that have the ability and do this kind of work <laughs> virtually most <laughs> universities have this capability this is, so, this is this is not you know this kind of analysis is something that um is fairly standard within the scientific community so it's not uh unusual what's what's different is being able to actually get access to these samples to be able to do that analysis so that's why that's why your teams set up these teams internationally in country and negotiate with those forums to get access to their bat caves yeah okay so we work with local teams mm -hmm. we train them um both in terms of protocols for collecting samples, but also protocols that um, really focus on their safety uh, to minimize, again, risk of inadvertent uh, infections. So there's some very rigorous, well-defined protocols for collecting samples, handling samples, transporting samples um, at every step along the way. So it's local teams. We you know, it's, it's fundamentally, again, this is part of the USAID's mandate. You're investing in building local capacities. So to the extent that we can train local um, right. cadres of people to go out and do this work, and to the extent that they can do the analysis within their own country, we will uh, focus on first and foremost making sure they have the capabilities to do that. All right, then, then, then why do we have what we, what we all know about is the, like the Wuhan lab and whether it's a lab two or lab three or lab four in terms of security. Why, why, where, how does that fit into this picture? Well, I mean, Wuhan um, Virology Lab is uh, like labs we have here in, in the United States, the New England um, uh, Fort Dietrich. needle. The New England uh, uh, <laughs> Emerging Disease Lab. Uh, so these are laboratories that uh, are far more sophisticated in terms of the kind of work that they can do and the kind of samples they handle. So Wuhan would handle samples of types that we wouldn't uh, handle. They, they could collect live viruses. Um, so there but, are some people, so you're, so the, is it, Am I understanding this? Correct me if I'm wrong. That PREDICT deactivates the viruses where the Wuhan labs of the world, those type of teams of people actually they have the ability to do that. What they do and don't do, that's a different story. But PREDICT um, never uh, handled and transported live samples. That was not part of its mandate uh, uh, or remit. We, we never approached that. All right, so the PREDICT project ended when? Uh, uh, that ended in 2020. <laughs> Was it supposed to just run for 10 years? It ran for about 11. 11, 11 years, okay. And then why, why was it stopped? Well, there was a new project um, essentially called uh, Deep Vision, which is a, was a follow-on to PREDICT. Deep Vision. Is Deep that Vision. Is that still at USAID? That's still USAID. And they're uh, <laughs> carrying out similar uh, viral discovery work. Yep. So who's running that now? Uh, that's a consortium involving uh, University Washington University, 
uh, with a group of other um, players. So it's a, different, it's, a different, it's a different coalition than predict was. Completely different team. So as you know, um, the way USAID works, we um, essentially create new projects and then we ask different groups to bid on them. And the best um, bid wins. In this case, the bid for Deep Vision went to a different group than had been uh, with Predict. So, what is there? What is the what is the purpose of that? Is it is it the same type of work where they're going to go out and look for viruses? It's it's building on what Predict did, um, and uh, essentially taking it to another level. That uh, looking for sort of narrowing the scope in terms of looking for specific viral families within animals um, and paying particular attention uh, to certain geographic areas. So it's it's a bit more targeted and it's essentially taking what, you know, predict allowed us to understand first and foremost that these events that we're concerned about are not likely to occur everywhere equally. There are certain places in the world that we would call hotspots. Right. And it's because of the interactive dynamics between wildlife, human populations, and our livestock. Those yeah. places, so for instance, a place like Wuhan, uh, the city of Wuhan, we had identified as a hotspot because uh, they're very large live animal markets that elevate the risk of spillover. So Deep Vision has built on that knowledge to bring particular attention to those geographic areas where the risk is greatest um, and by identifying what practices we're mostly concerned about that enable spillover. The ham, again, handling of wildlife populations in an open air market creates a considerable risk. So being able to collect samples and um, bring fine uh, insight into the viral populations that are circulating in these hotspots, um, again, allow us to be much more strategic and lot, a lot smarter. So I have, a I have a question that no one's been able to answer for me. If nobody knows the origin of this and everybody says it's going to return again, I do not understand why in 2019, end of 2019 or beginning of 2020, why every world leader didn't say shut down the wet moths in every country where they are. Yeah. Why didn't that happen? It didn't happened. come from the lab. That well, it's just common sense. These animal markets are cr of critical importance to people's access to um, food. So you have to re. Um, Dennis, I think that restructure everything. Dennis, Dennis, having you know, just because the high, higher echelon in China no. likes bat sauce doesn't mean you should have bats in there. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. What I'm saying is, if you tried to do it, you would essentially. Um, what we know is that you'll create a black market that you have no control over. 
So well, the, the, the black market today is larger than, than the open trading of animals because of, yeah. because of the money. The, the point is, there are ways of making those markets safer. They're not, it's not a foregone conclusion that these markets have to be a place where spillover events would occur. You, there are what are called good biosecurity measures. The way you um, house the animals, uh, the environmental cleanliness of the space that they're in. There are procedures and protocols that you can take even in a live market, dramatically reduces the risk of any adverse event happening. Dennis, um, I've been in I've been in these wet markets. There, yeah. There's nothing there's nothing clean about anyone that I've ever been in from. No, Bank I'm or- saying that's that's absolutely true. But what we also know, Christine, is that you can make them safe places. So look, COVID nineteen should have put enormous amount of pressure on everyone everywhere in the world to learn from this experience so that we never have it again. One of those things is that we need to be much better at how we manage our interactions with these animals. And we need to structure these markets in a way that would be very different than they are today. But similarly, uh, we need to have an aggressive surveillance system that gives us insight into emerging risk, not after it's emerged, but before it emerges. There are things that we have not done collectively that this pandemic tells us we need to do if we're ever going to make sure we never have a COVID-19-like event again. It's appalling. But look, we've seen this, you know, every time we have an event that scares the bee japers out of us. Everyone gets religion for a short period of time. And then as soon as that crisis leaves the front pages, everyone reverts back to doing what they were doing before. Look at the world today as we you know, enter into a period of COVID-19 fatigue. We're carrying on as if the pandemic has ended. And it clearly hasn't ended. And that virus continues to evolve. And do not be surprised if a future variant, you know, we're now dealing with BA5. Well, that is far more transmissible than the original variant. At some point, it's just as likely a new variant will emerge that will make it not only more transmissible, but much more deadly. And everything that we're doing today, allowing this virus to continue to circulate unchallenged, creates opportunities for this virus to continue to mutate, evolve, and acquire new capabilities. And one of those new capabilities could easily be not just more transmissible, but far more deadly. But we've sort of thrown our hands up and you go into you know, um, supermarkets, you go, you know, into stores anywhere now, and it's very few people you see wearing masks. So it's a, this, this virus basically has an open invitation to infect any and all. And with every infection, it's an opportunity for this virus to replicate. And every time it replicates, 
that has the opportunity to mutate. So um, we live in a dangerous world of our own making. So let's talk about <clears throat> why you set up uh, <clears throat> the Global Verome. Before we get to our Dennis, um, I've been in, I've been brings potential risk, but you can eliminate the risk by designing your activities in a way that um, emphasizes safety. But it also means that you have to be subject to the kind of uh, oversight and inspection to ensure that you are fully compliant. It's sort who's, of like think about um, who sets the rules, Dennis. Well, right now we don't have standardized rules, and to me, again, that's one of the opportunities that COVID nineteen, you know, should have given us, which is recognizing there are several uh, global conditions that we need to put in play. One, to create standardized protocols and standardized requirements for oversight for any kind of viral discovery. But Why similarly, there is a real risk of accidental release from laboratories. But what we don't have is a global convention that standardizes the protocols, the oversight, um, of labs around the world, making them all accountable. You know, the, we have for nuclear energy, uh, you know, standardized protocols and conventions that subjects uh, everyone to um, the type of inspections that ensure the compliance with international standards. And where those standards are not being applied, um, those countries become pariah states. And we know that. I mean, so we have. So my, my, my question North Korea's. My question is, and, and, I, and I have to think that the audience has to be thinking this way too. 
if there's if it's so dangerous, if it's a double-edged sword, uh, and it's recognized by people in your profession, okay, who are on the front lines of this. I mean, seriously, you're on the front lines. We, we yeah. you know, that, that's who you are. Um, and there's no rules, there's no protocols, there's no standards, there's no global convention on this. What the hell are you people putting yourselves at risk for? And why are you putting people of the population at risk when you're going out there looking for this stuff? Look, we have within our operations the protocols that elevate safety. What we don't have is global standards that make sure everyone who does this. No joke. But no joke. We, we know what needs to be done. It would be good if we had global leadership that ensured this type of work, whether it is going into the field, collecting samples from wildlife or the type of research that goes on in laboratories, we need global standards to ensure this work, wherever it occurs, is safe and is subject to the same kind of rigorous oversight that uh, ensures sustained safety. So that just means if you 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 can have, you know, PREDICT was a project. It was one run by and owned by the U.S. government. And we had very strict protocols to ensure safety. Who who owns those those patents, those 1,200? I guess it's not no, the right. No, that, that's public domain. Look, that's, again, so, so when because you, it was invested in those, because we developed those standards and protocols with U.S. taxpayer money, they're subject to um, being open and transparent. They're accessible to anyone. And they're right. on uh, the PREDICT website. So, so is the military involved with any of this any of this research uh, the military no they no they're not they're not um, what about what about the other countries well in, in other countries the military has a different role than our military does so yes there are countries where the military could be involved in uh, this type of research but I don't have visibility on that myself. So when we so when we talk about um, bioweapons, is this it, 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 if this is misused, it could be a bioweapon, correct? Oh, of course. But look, we don't need to go out and discover a new virus for a, a candidate for a, um, a bioweapon. We've got viruses that we know about that we can easily access today um, that. I go back to the avian influenza example. Um, we, we don't need to discover new things to create dangerous weapons. Uh, we can, if you want to weaponize a virus, there are any number of candidates that are already known and circulating in areas where we know where they are. So if someone wants to do um, the bad deed, they don't have to wait for the work of people doing viral discovery. They can go out and grab an Ebola virus. They can go out and grab a Zika virus. Um, there are ample number of viruses that um, we know about, we know where they are. So if you want to bioweaponize, you don't have to wait for viral discovery to do that. That's, you know, that, that's just. And who discovered the, who, so, so you're saying that there's no bioweapons 
work going on because there's a, there's many there's, there's many viruses that can be used. No, for your your question suggested that by discovering new viruses, it would open up opportunities for people who, who may want to bioweaponize. My point is, if there are people that want to bioweaponize, you don't have to wait for viral discovery. There are ample candidates okay. readily available and accessible. That said, I'm not aware of anyone that is in the business of trying to weaponize any of these viruses. But it's always a concern. There are bad actors out there. So right. you want to be careful about that. Let's talk about the, um, the One Health concept. You, I've ever heard I've, on some of the interviews you've done, you've talked about that plants, animals, human beings. Okay. So the, the interaction between that, that, that is now the focus. Well, it's not new, but it, you, people are hearing more about it at the WHO. Um, there's been to, to, to put some sovereignty, some country sovereignty dealing with health based upon that model under the auspices and the tutelage of the, of the WHO. Talk about the significance of that. Well, One Health comes out of a recognition that our own well-being isn't independent of the ecosystem around us. And as we've talked about in terms of viral threats, our health is very much impacted on by events that occur within a bat within a rodent, within a non-human primate. If we want to better protect our human health, then we need to have a much more interactive um, relationship spanning human health, animal health, domestic animals, and wildlife, as well as environmental. Um, so this ultimately recognizes that the partnerships and the skills and the capabilities that need to be in play to really minimize the risk of future events of the type that we're talking about from ever occurring again. It means, means that we need to have professionals who are far more adept at collaborating and working across wildlife, livestock, human populations, and that have both the technical and the strategic understanding about uh, how those interactions uh, can be managed to benefit and how those interactions, if left to themselves, uh, could result in great risk to us. So One Health is about transforming what are largely siloed professional sectors. You have the medical profession for humans. You have veterinarians for animals. You have conservationists focusing on ecologic-related uh, issues. Um, so we've invested in, in addition to PREDICT, um, uh, the program that I ran has invested significantly in bringing at the university level opportunities for students being trained as doctors, physicians, 
students being trained as veterinarians or ecologists or epidemiologists or nurses, that they are also now being trained in what we would consider One Health core competencies. So when they come out to their professional career as a veterinarian or as a physician, they've already had opportunities um, to work with the other professional sectors. They're more familiar and uh, more capable of forming partnerships. So there are about 170 different schools um, in Asia and in Africa. There's the Southeast Asia One Health University Network, Siohan, that's um, based in Thailand, but involves um, uh, countries across Southeast Asia. And there's Afrolin, the Africa One Health University Network, uh, based in um, Kampala, Uganda, uh, that uh, involves universities in East Africa, Central Africa, and West Africa. So One Health is an opportunity to change the professional dynamics across multiple professions, create partnerships where there's, um, you know, when there is an event that requires those professions to come together, they know how to do it, they know with whom they need to work, and they have the kind of skill sets that would make them far more adept at dealing with these multi-sectoral threats. It's worth noting, this is perfectly consistent with also dealing with climate change. Climate change itself is a multi-sectoral phenomenon. Um, It's being driven by multiple um, events across agriculture, uh, energy, uh, extractive industries, farming, all of those kinds of activities are altering the atmospheric gases that are driving the events around climate change forward. So similarly, One Health is an example of how we need to also bring the multiple sectors uh, involved in dealing with climate change together. So it's a, not just about uh, emerging viral threats, this strategy of dealing with multi-sectoral threats through new multi-sectoral alliances is also critical toward addressing long-term issues around climate change. So you're basically talking about a global conversation and a global commitment. Yeah. Okay, so very early on, about two years ago, when you were explaining to me, pardon me, what your, you know, what your business model was, one of the things you said to is that the um, by studying the and correct me if I'm wrong about this, Dennis, but as I understood it, you guys were hunting for these coronaviruses to figure out which one would be transmissible to humans. So then it could this morph to uh, seasonal vaccinations for certain coronavirus families. Mm-hmm. Do I have that right? Well, sort of. Uh, look, coronaviruses, we've had lots of experience with coronaviruses. 
you and I and everyone who might be listening to this. Um, because one of the major um, sources of colds that we deal with every year, coronaviruses are implicated in that as well. So we know that there are members of the coronavirus family that have been actively part of infecting us and causing the common cold. Uh, COVID-19 is related to those, but obviously very different. It's different in a couple of ways. One, the consequences of the infection um, is potentially far more severe, particularly as we learn more about long COVID. Um, but what we also notice is that the coronaviruses involved in the common cold tend to be much more seasonal. They um, emerge and spread during the cold season. The COVID-19 we've seen has been able to spread and remain actively transmittable um, all year round. So it's, a, it's different than those coronaviruses. It's right now, it's a 12 month out of the year uh, phenomenon. So, so, so why, why is vaccines the only answer to dealing with this? Because that seems to be the, 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 you know, that's the mantra. It, what certainly- Vaccines aren't the only, look, but vaccines right now stop, they, the vaccines we have don't stop us from getting infected. I know. They, you stop, thought that us over, they, you stop, they stop us from going to the hospital and they stop us from dying. Um, well, you, that's not true, Dennis. There are people who are dying from the vaccinations. Who are, those are people that have very, um, very high risk underlying conditions. So they, have, they may have a, a cancer. And so the effectiveness of the vaccine is that much less effective. So they're living with some pre-existing condition that makes them ultra uh, vulnerable. But for the vast majority of people who are not um, living with some uh, very nasty pre-existing condition, the vaccine keeps us out of the hospital, period. The people that are going to the hospital, and I was, I was over at a hospital just the other day. My, my wife uh, came down with COVID and took her over to the emergency room so that she could get access to the antiviral, uh, which is quite effective against COVID. And in talking with the physician there, the only people they're seeing hospi hospitalized are people who are not vaccinated. Everyone else is showing up uh, with symptoms, but they're not symptoms that drive them into the hospital. So, one, the vaccine stops us from really, by and large, with some exceptions always, but by and large, for the vast majority of us, it keeps us out of the hospital. But it doesn't stop us from getting infected, which means we can still be carriers of this virus and cause other people to get infected. And we also can be a host that allows this virus to evolve and a new variant could emerge. So that's a great risk. But the best method for protecting us against transmission remains a face mask and social distancing. Those we know work. 
And those are things that we, by and large, are abandoning uh, in the face of uh, the diminished risk of hospitalization because of the vaccine. But we are now elevating the risk, even as we, in the short term, are likely, even if we do get infected, not end up in a hospital. We're still creating opportunities for this virus to evolve and new variants emerge. And one of those variants, as I said before, could not only be more transmissible, but it could be more deadly. So that's why it is of incredible importance for people to use common sense and to wear a mask when they're in a crowded situation. Has there ever been a mask study paid for by the United States, USAID, FDA, NIH, NIA? Has anybody, anybody in this country, any agency paid money to see if masks were viable? Pay money for what? To do a study on, on masks. They've, they've done them overseas, and what, what they're showing overseas in the foreign studies is that the, the, they, they don't work. No, 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 no. The, the masks work remarkably. Look, and, and think about this. We use masks routinely in hospital settings for about COVID. We use masks routinely in hospital settings to make sure we minimize transmission of um, whatever microbe might be circulating uh, in a hospital. And they are remarkably effective in infection prevention and control. So now, Christine, I'm gonna, I- I'm gonna, I'm gonna, post, I'm gonna post those two, those two foreign studies that were done about masks, Dennis, because that's not what they're finding. If we're talking about N95 masks, we're talking about highly effective, perfect, nothing is perfect but it dramatically reduces the risk of infection. It dramatically reduces the risk of transmission, period. Now even think about this. Look, if you're infected and you're coughing and sneezing and spreading that virus out, that virus isn't escaping as a single um, minuscule um, you know, entity it's entrapped in all sorts of mucus and spittle. And that is captured by the mask. So I'm sorry, whatever you were looking at is malarkey, period. It's a highly effective tool. And it's been an historic tool we've used in hospital settings for infection prevention and control that has kept hospitals a safe place for people to go. N95s are not worn by the public for the most part, Dennis. That's what we're mostly wearing. You can go on Amazon, you can get it tomorrow. But that's not what the public has been wearing. They that's don't, what the public has been advised to wear. And most people, when I walk down the street, most of the masks I see are N95 masks, yes. That's interesting. That's in DC, right? Anywhere, whether I'm out here in Chestertown or you know, when I was I was just traveling in Southeast Asia, most people are wearing uh, N95 masks. That's not what I'm seeing on my all of the country. Um, but having said that, Dennis, what is it that the public doesn't know? Because there has been there have been polls that have been taken 
Uh, very interesting poll came out this past week, and it's a, it's a breakdown on whether people are concerned about monkeypox, the next, the next pandemic. And for the most part, it, you know, most con- they're, they're not concerned. And yep. it is it gets to this fatigue. So you, you, you take it seriously. So what is it that, that the, the rest of the world is missing out there, the average American? Well, the, the average person, look, we, revisit, we collectively, myself included, we respond to headlines, right? When there's a, a headline on the front page, that gets our attention. But when that same issue now ends up on, you know, four pages into the newspaper, we pay less attention to it. Um, we're paying less attention today than we were two months ago to the war in Ukraine. But the war in Ukraine is no less deadly and lethal today than it was two months ago. But our ability to sustain interest in this on a general sense uh, is limited. So we see this over and over and over again. Uh, Avian influenza got everyone's attention and then people had avian influenza fatigue and they lost interest. We had a pandemic in 2009 and that led to an extended period of flu fatigue that played itself out from 2013 and beyond. And we fully anticipate uh, that people to stay focused and be attentive uh, to COVID-19. The virus is no less deadly, no less lethal today than it's ever been. It's far more transmissible, but people have just lost interest. Um, so it, a new version, you know, we're learning. I mean, there's a reality. We have to learn to coexist with this virus. Um, this is not one we're going to eliminate. It's a part of our long-term natural landscape. And we have to you know, develop the kind of behaviors and practices that lower our risk from uh, inadvertently either getting infected or causing other people to get infected. And we have to have diligence. Uh, it's a bit like driving a car, right? I mean, um, you know, no, no matter what we do, if we didn't have red lights and stop signs, no matter how many times we were told that we have to stop at an intersection and look both ways and then go, um, if we didn't have stop signs and the risk of penalties with those stop signs, we would it would be havoc out on the road. People wouldn't pay attention. But we've established standards and norms for behavior in cars on the roadway. And we've developed laws that regulate our ability to do that. So we've reduced the number of bad actors out there that will just speed through intersections with um, not a care in the world. In some way, we have to bring the same kind of you know, uh, rigor towards maintaining are practices that lower the risk of further transmission of this virus. We don't want to have lockdowns. We don't want, you know, to keep kids out of school. Um, what we need to do is to continue for people to get boosted, get vaccinated, get boosted, 
as new iterations of this virus emerge, hopefully we can keep pace both with new vaccines, but also um, increasing access to highly effective pharmaceuticals, antivirals. And we can basically turn this virus into a managed infectious disease risk. But it requires that we just don't revert to doing what we did before COVID-19. There are certain things we have to continue to do. Um, and it's all about common sense. It's not- Are you, are you in favor of mandated vaccinations? Well, look, what, I don't know about you, but I suspect we're of the same generation. When I was a child, for me to be able to go to school, I had to get a polio vaccine and I had to show um, that I'd been fully vaccinated. It was part of the norm and it was because to keep everyone safe, everyone had to comply with the same standards. And quite frankly, people willing, with some exceptions always, but people were willingly compliant and thankful that we had the opportunity to protect our children from diseases like polio. Uh, my mother, I mean, I have, my eldest brother um, was seriously uh, disabled by polio. And he, you know, for us was a constant reminder of just how deadly and lethal that virus was. And when the first vaccine appeared, it was one of the great miracles in my family's life. My mother lived in terror. Her other children um, would similarly be infected with polio. We live in a society where because of vaccinations, the, we see very little infectious disease transmission um, in our communities. But we've seen, and as a result, we've now seen people become skeptical about the value of vaccines. And so we've seen parents now taking steps to prevent their children getting a measles vaccine. And the I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about measles. I'm not talking about no, but I'm right talking now. about the behaviors, the behaviors that will ultimately um, challenge the long-term ability for us to keep COVID at bay. And when we stop believing that infectious diseases are a risk, we elevate the opportunity for those infectious diseases to reassert themselves. They haven't gone anywhere. We've had multiple measles epidemic outbreaks in the United States over the last several years because there are children out there that have not been vaccinated. And there will come a time when we're gonna see the same thing happen with COVID, that if we don't maintain a high level of diligence, we're going to see it. Now, whether or not- So, we so your answer is yes. that, I would hope social pressures would be enough that we value the safety, not only of our own family, but the families around us and the collective responsibility of being vaccinated. So Dennis, again, are you in favor of government or employer? Because it seems it's what I'm hearing. I would say not government, I would say employers, I think schools, they have 
both the opportunity and the public right. Public schools is government. Public school, but all of the local levels. And this, and so this would be all over the world because COVID's all over the world, right? Sure. Look, we 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 have. You, do you do you understand how hard that is for some people to accept? Do, I mean, seriously. Do, I mean, do no. you really? And we have we have the same we have the same issue with fluoride and water. It's been a great benefit for our having fluoride and water, and we have people who are horrified by there being fluoride and water. But as a public health measure, it's been a godsend. So how how is it and presuming that the people that you're sitting at the table with agree with this, okay? And I'm not look, I'm not gonna say who agrees or who doesn't agree. What I'm saying if we're talking about having a healthy population, mm-hmm. then we first and foremost need to recognize we are part of a community. And as part of a community, we have community responsibilities. I am a person that if I'm infected, I have the risk of infecting someone else. And I may not have an adverse effect, but I may inadvertently cause an adverse effect in someone else. The responsible thing for me to do is to make sure I don't get infected. And by doing that, I'm a community member that is making sure I don't further elevate the risk for other people, particularly as I noted, people with um, very high risk pre-existing conditions are enormously vulnerable. Um, And so what we've lost, I think, over the last several decades is a sense of community and community responsibility. We've elevated the right and the sanctity of the individual at the expense of the well-being of the community. One way or another, we need to find a better balance. Individuals do have rights, but the community also has a right, and we have to figure out how individual behaviors can not pose a risk to the larger community. Where does pharma come into all to play in terms of the coronaviruses? And I mean, when you when you talked earlier at the beginning of this conversation, you said that, you know, the World Bank's involved, the governments are involved, the host governments are involved. Yeah. You guys have to get permission to take that virus, deactivated virus out of the countries. Look, does the, does the pharmaceutical industry benefit from any of the research that any of you coronavirus hunters are out there doing? Oh, of course, absolutely. And do they have do they have a vested financial stake in 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 supporting you guys? They certainly have an invested stake, absolutely. And this is work that they uh, look. It, this gives them insight into what they should be paying attention to, what viruses, and you begin to learn which domains within the viral um, RNA or DNA. Um, sort of encodes for transmissibility or virulence. How so who, who owns this product right now? All of those are issues that are going to have to be grappled with. The whole issue of intellectual property rights uh, is one that looms sometimes. So it will be a big issue that 
the legal community uh, is going to have to grapple with. We, we don't have answers to that right now. Well, but, but who, whose possession do they stay in? I mean, is there a warehouse of this? I mean, refrigerators? I, you know, there's, I forget. This, as I said, what we generate are basically things you can read in a book. It's the sequence that matters. So who owns the And sequence? so the sequence becomes the value so that would the pharmaceutical companies have to have the sequence to come up with the vaccination? That's when the Chinese in January, less than a month after um, the initial outbreak occurred in Wuhan, the, Chinese, the Chinese published the full sequence of COVID-19. The vaccines that we got in October were all um, a consequence of the pharmaceutical companies being able to download that sequence that the Chinese um, scientists uh, posted. And that was the basis for being able to develop the uh, vaccines. They didn't have to have the virus. They just need to have the sequence. Don't you have to have the sequence from the virus? So I said, you, you can denature that um, you don't have to have a live virus to have the sequence. Okay, I'm confused, okay? And I'm not a scientist. But if you have, you know, 16, what is it, 1.6 million of these viruses out there in nature, how can somebody figure out what the sequence is if they don't know the origin of this crisis? Well, the sequence, look, the sequence is an alphabet. You're just given an alphabet. You don't even have to know where it came from, period. But how do you know? How do you know you have the right one? How do you, how do you know? know? There's 1.6 billion. 1.6. I'm looking at my figures here. 1.6 yeah. million potential coronaviruses out there, according yeah. to you guys experts. So if, no, I didn't say 1.6 million coronaviruses. I said 1.6 million viruses across 25 viral yeah, families. I got which coronavirus is one. Thank you. Now I can read. I can make sense yeah. of my own notes. So, Thank you. But then to make it to make it as simple as possible. Yeah. In order to develop a vaccine today, this is different. Twenty years ago, you would have needed the virus itself. Today, okay. science is very different. All you need is the sequence. So you can kill the virus. That is nothing to the sequence. So your ability to kill the virus and make it then safe to work with the sequence allows you then to know what the sequence of this virus is. And knowing that sequence allows the people who uh, make vaccines to know what they are looking for and the type of, of vaccines they need to construct. So it's, it's basically the sequence is like it's a sentence. And once they know that sentence, they know what to look for. See, I'm having a hard time understanding why everybody thinks that the reaction to this thing is a success. Because I don't th look at this as success because we don't know what the origin of this was. No one seems to step up to the plate to demand from the Chinese to find out exactly what the hell no. happened over there. And to, get to, the generate, to generate the vaccine, you don't have to know any of that. Well, prevent, no, oh, Dennis, this is where I'm going to disagree the next to prevent the next event, we critically need to know what was the origins of COVID-19. And today, there is an abundance of evidence that suggests it was natural. 
but that doesn't, that's an abundance of evidence that suggests what we don't have is a kind of forensic investigation that would clearly state this was natural or lab. And we need that. And there's no excuse for not having, but global has made that investigation impossible. Everything else right now is opinion. And opinion is useless. Well, Dennis, we the want to prevent the next pandemic, we need to know how this virus moved from a bat into a human. Did it do it by way of an animal in a market? Did it do it by way of a laboratory release? We don't know. We don't have a definitive answer for anything. We have reasonable evidence to suggest it was natural, which tells us we have a lot of work to do to clean up those animal markets. Dennis, there are a lot of people that are absolutely terrified to have the truth come out. And you and I both know that. There are a lot of people, a lot of heads that would roll because of people not stepping up to the plate and doing what they should have done from the very beginning. Well, look. There were people in your arena, there were people in my arena in the media that didn't demand and when, when the uh, Australian prime minister came out and was demanding that the Chinese become transparent, it, they pushed back on him. Nobody stepped up to the plate. There wasn't anybody in the Western world that stepped up to the plate and demanded now, from the Chinese. Look, Christine, and I'm going to have to leave in a minute, but let me end on this note. The worst thing that happened with COVID-19 was the politicalization of global health. There was a global health event that occurred in Wuhan. It seemed that we were living in a world of high risk. Our political leaders essentially declared war on each other around this issue, rather than allowing the science to do the kind of investigative work that would have given us insight into the origins of this. The leaders from the United States essentially began calling this the China virus, the Wuhan virus, politicized it to the extent that China will never open up that door. And they are wrong for not allowing this investigation to occur. But we basically soiled our own world by turning it into a political hot potato and as, as a consequence, we are as uh, ignorant today as we were three years ago, but we're far more opinionated. And as a consequence, we're far more uh, fractionated about this whole issue. And it, what it means that when there is another event, we're far less likely to get insight early because we've seen what it means when countries begin to politicalize issues like this, we're in a far more vulnerable state because of the reckless use of words our political leaders used and turned what was a global health problem into a global political nightmare. And there's no excuse for that. And it's of our own making. So yes, we don't know. There's not been the investigation that basically the wagons have been circled 
and the end result of we're less informed than we need to be. But it's the direct consequence of the political leaders that created the kind of hostile environment that made the science impossible to execute, period. Dennis Carroll. I'm going to have to go on that. Thank you. Thank you very much.